If you've got a Bible with you on the couch there where you're at, you can turn with me uh, to Mark chapter 7 is where we're going to be this morning, verses 24 to 37. Uh, if you don't have a copy of it, it'll be on the screen as I read it for us here momentarily. But we continue our journey through the Gospel of Mark. We've been working our way section by section through this Gospel, considering who Jesus is and how we ought to respond to Him, how we ought to order our lives around Him. And so this morning is no different. We continue to take a look at the person of Jesus as revealed to us on the pages of Mark's Gospel and then consider the, the, how we ought to respond to Him, the truths that would impact our lives. So we pick up in Mark chapter 7 and we'll read down uh, verses 24 down through verse 37 together. Beginning in verse 24, Mark writes, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, even, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting touched his tongue. And he looked up to heaven. He sighed and he said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the impression as you've looked out across uh, a desk or a cubicle at work or as you've walked outside of your home and you've considered the lives of your neighbors or even as you've looked in the mirror that there are some people who are just beyond the grace of God. You know, that was the impression that many of the first century Jews had of Gentiles, those who were strangers to God's covenants of promise, those who were strangers. They were not ethnically Jews, nor had they converted to become God-worshippers or God-fearers. And that was the perspective that many Jews in Jesus' day operated with. They thought the Gentiles were indeed unclean and they were irredeemable. And yet on the heels of Jesus' teaching, last week we saw that Jesus, what He did last week was He pressed us on the nature of what it means to be unclean. As He told us about the true source of our defilement, which we said was our hearts, right? The source is in our hearts. It's not the symptoms that make us unclean, but the condition of our hearts that make us unclean because out of the heart comes all the other symptoms that they, like, they flow downstream from the spring, Right? And so he pressed us on the source, but also the solution for our uncleanness, that we must come to him. 
We must throw ourselves upon His mercy, not hold up our own merits and say, hey, look, I've washed my hands, I've bathed my body, I am clean. But no, that's no way to approach God. Rather, we must come to Him not holding up our merits, but throwing ourselves upon His mercy. So last week, Jesus taught us about the source and solution for our uncleanness. And now we see in Mark chapter 7, Jesus entering into a region that was filled with Gentiles which in the, in the first century Jewish mindset would have been an unclean region. And he goes there, we told in the text, to find rest and respite. But yet he ultimately ends up ministering to these unclean people. James Edwards, a commentator, said this about where Jesus goes. He says, Tyre is probably represented the most extreme expression of paganism, both actually and symbolically, that a Jew could expect to encounter. So this particular region that Jesus goes to was a very Gentile region. And so if anyone was beyond the mercy of God, if anyone was beyond the grace of God, if anyone was beyond the love of God in the first century Jewish mind, it would have been these people. And I'm certain that many of us have probably had the impression at times in our own lives that this person or these people that I've seen or that I've known, they're beyond the grace of God. They're beyond the love of God. How could God redeem that situation? How could God change that heart? How could God save that person? And yet what we find in this text is that when Jesus goes into this place, perhaps one of the most, the darkest place, that Jesus would in, enter physically or personally when it comes to the population, that Jesus ultimately, we find him to bring light and we find him to bring life as he infuses grace and truth and love to even those people. So listen, this morning as we consider this text together, I want you to understand, and I hope it shatters the perception that some of us have of those people. And in order to do that, I want to try to chop this up into four different truths that I think we need to understand if that perception is going to be shattered, if that veil is going to be torn down before our eyes. And the first truth that I want us to try to wrestle with here in the text, that it will change our perspective, is this, is that if we're ever going to move beyond our perception that some people are beyond God's mercy, grace, and love, we must grasp gospel truth. That's what you see happening here in verses 24 to 30. See, in this particular text, Jesus enters the region of Tyre and Sidon, which were port cities in ancient Phoenicia. So if you're thinking on modern day map, you think of modern day Lebanon. They were located just north of the region of Galilee. And as port cities in the ancient world, there were all types of people coming and going for trade. And there were all kinds of practices taking place within those port cities and within that region that were very pagan practices. And although Jesus enters this region to find rest, the text tells us he could not be hidden. In other words, he could not escape the needs of the people who surrounded him. That people still sought him out despite the fact that he went there for rest. He could not be hidden. And in verse 26, we're introduced to a woman who hears about Jesus' presence there among her people. And with astonishing boldness, she approaches Jesus and she falls at his feet. Now, this is, this is astonishing. 
What takes place in this text is, is, is breaks all customs of the ancient world. Because although this woman was a Syrophoenician woman by birth, so Syria, Phoenicia, those two places butted up against each other, so she's from that region. She's a Greek from that region, which means she would have been a pagan. She was not a God-fearer, not a God-worshipper. And so, but she would have been a near neighbor to Judea. Right, just to the north of them. And so she would have been familiar with the customs and the practices of the Jewish people. She would have known that she had none of the social credit, none of the moral credit, none of the ethnic credit, none of the religious credit to approach this Jewish rabbi who was seeking respite in that region. Because she was a Phoenician, she was a Gentile, she was not a Jew. Right? She was a pagan, not a God worshiper. She was a woman and not a man, which would have been inappropriate for her to come before him without an invitation. And she had a daughter with an unclean spirit. So in every way, she knew she was unclean and disqualified from approaching Jesus. Listen, she was on the wrong side of every single track you could imagine. She was, she, was, she was quarantined by every barrier that could possibly be put in place. And yet here she is going into the home where Jesus is staying without invitation. And she falls down at Jesus' feet and begs. Now that verb there in the text is a, what's called a present progressive. And here's what that means. That's, just, that's a grammatical term, but what it means is this. Is that something she's doing right now and she keeps on doing Right, So she is continually just pleading her case and begging, crying out to Jesus to do something about the situation and condition in the life of her daughter. So nothing would stand in her way. She would not take no for an answer. Now her initial boldness may not be all that surprising to us, right? As Tim Keller says in his book, The King's Cross, he says there are heroes and there are cowards, and there are all kinds of people everywhere in between, and then there's a totally other category called parents, okay? Those of us who are parents know that whenever our children are at risk, whenever our children are in pain, whenever our children are suffering, there is often no limits to our attempts to alleviate the suffering, to bring an end to the pain. We want to fix it. And so there's no, maybe her initial boldness isn't all that shocking or surprising to us as a mother who is bold enough and willing to break down all the barriers to go and seek help from Jesus. But look at Jesus' response to her. Consider his response. In verse 27, he says to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now listen, we live in a very canine, friendly, loving society, right? There are vets all over our particular community who are ready, willing, and able to fix whatever ailment your dog may have. You could spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on treating a dog's condition, right? We love our pets. We love our animals. Last night, uh, my family and I settled in in front of the television and watched the Netflix movie. I think it was recorded back in 2018, Benji. Okay, you remember Benji? Right? The, some of us remember the original Benji. I remember Lassie, okay? That little border collie that just saves Timmy from the well over and over again, okay? So we're a very canine-friendly society. We love our pets. We love our dogs. But this was not 
a canine-friendly society. They did not love their dogs the way that we love our dogs. In fact, in those days, most dogs would have been considered to be wild, dirty scavengers. They would have been considered unclean. So to call someone a dog would have been a terrible insult. See, dog in our day is like cute, cuddly, kind. Dog in that day is not good. Okay, that is not something, it's not an encouraging word that you give to someone when you call them a dog. In fact, when David comes out to fight Goliath with his stones and his sling, he says, Goliath echoes, his loud voice echoes through the valley, he says, what am I, a dog that you would come to me this way? You would come out to meet me this way? In other words, that's an insult. And often the Gentiles were called dogs by the Jews because the Jews considered them to be as unclean as those wild, dirty scavengers. So on on the surface level, when Jesus uses the word dog and applies it toward her, it is considered to be an insult. But yet the key, I want you to consider with me for a moment, the key to grasping Jesus' response here is to understand what he says to her as a parable. As a parable. Now, nearly every commentator points this out. Every commentator raises this issue. And the reason being is because the word that Jesus uses for dog here in the text is an unusual word. It's not the normal word for dog. It's what uh, English majors would call a diminutive. In other words, it's kind of a, 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 a lower sense. Like in the same way that instead of calling God Father, we would we, we call the, the, the scriptures call him Abba, Daddy. It's a diminutive. Okay? The same thing is true here. Instead of using the normal word for dog, it's a diminutive, which referred to something like a puppy. Like a puppy. And that's the word that Jesus employs. It's not the, not the normal word for it. And then you see this word first. There in the text, assuming that the answer that Jesus gives her is not absolutely not. I'm not going to do anything for you, but rather first, right, implies not yet. So Jesus says to her this, essentially, you know how families work, right? You're a mom. You know how families work. When you gather at the table to eat, the children eat first, then the pets, then the puppies under the table get the leftovers, it's not right to break that order. You don't come into the table with a table set and with forks and spoons and knives and plates and family-style dinner with serving utensils and serving everything up. And you don't just take the first scoop and drop it on the plate and put it under the table and let the dog come lap it up. I remember whenever our kids sat in their high chairs okay, back in those days. All right, It's been a little while for us, but when our kids were sitting in high chairs... Our dog, which was a golden retriever at the time, right? She anxious. She would sit under the high chair just waiting, right? Because she knew something was coming. All right, but we didn't take the food and put it on the floor for the dog. The crumbs fell from the table, and the dog would eat off of what was being dropped by our children from the high chair. Jesus says it's the order is important. First, let the children eat. First. So the meaning of this parable that Jesus uses in his response to this woman's plea for her daughter's condition, right? The meaning of the parable is found, listen, in Jesus' understanding of his mission first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. See, Jesus never travels to Rome. He never travels to Greece. He never goes up into Turkey. He never goes to the nations. He spends his life 
traveling around and ministering to, concentrating his entire ministry on the people of Israel to show them that he is the fulfillment of every promise, of every prediction, of every prophecy. He is the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true temple. He is what Israel has been looking for and longing for ever since the fall and ever since God calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans to bring him to a land that he would show them Jesus is what every promise, prophecy, and prediction was pointing to. And He fulfills every office of of the Old Testament in His person and in His work. So Jesus concentrates His ministry on Israel. Then after, only after His death and resurrection, does He call His disciples together before His ascension into heaven and say what? Go to all the nations now. And make disciples. Right? In the Great Commission, he sends them to every people group on the face of the earth. Yet he spends his time in Israel. So essentially, Jesus says, I am not here for the Gentiles now. I'm looking for a respite in this Gentile region. And so he says, listen, first, the children must eat. Now, <laughs> look at the woman's response. Now, her initial boldness is like, yeah, of course, she's a mom. She's a parent. She's going to do everything she can to alleviate her child's suffering. But look at how she responds to Jesus' parable. In verse 28, we read, and this is incredible. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Look, she will not take no for an answer. She says to Jesus, listen, but the puppies eat too, right? They do eventually eat. And I'm here for mine. There's a boldness in her approach to Jesus. There's an assertiveness and a confidence with which she comes. Because Jesus, listen, He has told her a parable. And in that, He's given her both a challenge and an offer. And listen, she understands both. And the reason she understands both is because she she enters the world of the parable. And she responds to Jesus with the very language, the very parabolic language that he has been using. She understands the challenge that Jesus gives. Listen, she says, listen, okay, okay, I get it. I understand I'm not supposed to be at the table. I'm not of the people of Israel. I don't have the promises of Scripture. I'm not of the covenant chosen people. I don't have the prophecies and commandments of Scripture. I'm disqualified by my uncleanness from a seat at the table. I am unworthy. I know I am, and I accept it. That's how she responds. And that's amazing. She doesn't get offended. Right? She's not like a cat that arches her back. Okay? trying to protect her territory. Her feathers don't get ruffled. She doesn't stand on her rights and say, how dare you call me this? But she un- so she understands the challenge, but she also understands the offer, church. Because she says essentially, however, there is more than enough on that table for everyone in the world. Right? Essentially, she's contending with God. She's contending with Jesus like Jacob contends with God. She's wrestling with Him and she will not let go until He blesses her. It's a phenomenal story as it unfolds. You cannot call what we see here a a, a humble boldness or a bold humility. right? And listen, the reason it's so strange to us is because it's absolutely foreign to us in 21st century America. Having this kind of humility and this kind of boldness joined together is absolutely foreign to us. Because you and I, 
in our culture, we don't know how to be assertive and bold unless we're standing for our rights. And we're standing on our own goodness saying, this is what I deserve. This is what I am owed. So you should give it to me. But that's not what this woman's doing at all. Listen, she comes to Jesus fixed and focused, simultaneously knowing that she is unworthy, but also unwilling to take no for an answer. And she's not coming on the basis of her own goodness because she recognizes she doesn't have a seat at the table. She's she's not pounding on the table saying, this is my right. But rather in humility, she's saying, I don't have a seat at the table. I know that I'm unworthy. And yet I know that even the crumbs that fall from that table are enough to fill and fulfill and satisfy and feed the entire world. So I'm not coming on the basis of my own goodness, she says, but I'm coming on the basis of your goodness. I'm not coming saying, listen, give me what I deserve because of my goodness. I'm coming and saying, give me what I don't deserve because of your goodness. And listen, church, that is the gospel. So when I say, if we're ever going to become a people who don't write off those who are around us as saying they're beyond the reach of God, they're beyond the love of God, they're beyond the grace of God, we have to grasp this gospel truth. That none of us is worthy. None of us can come to God saying, pounding on the table, I have my rights. Give me what I deserve. In fact, those of us who do will find that what we deserve is not what we're asking for. But rather the gospel says, listen, we don't deserve anything on the basis of our goodness, but we come and we approach God as unworthy beggars who are petitioning God, who are asking God, crying out to God, not on the basis of our goodness, but on the basis of His. Not to receive what we do deserve, but to receive what we don't deserve. Listen, she says, I will accept your insult, but I will not insult you by turning aside from your mercy but I'll throw myself on it. And then we read in verse 29, listen, for this statement, Jesus responds, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Some translations say, this is, some translations word it more emphatically, like this is, this is a phenomenal answer. Right? More paraphrastic translations say, this is an incredible answer. And for it, you may go your way. The demon is gone. James Edwards, one commentator, said this about this story. He said, This pagan woman understands Jesus' mission disclosed to her in the parable of the children and the dogs at the table. She fully accepts that Jesus must fulfill God's revelation to Israel, but the superabundance that that fulfillment will produce will spill over and include her and others like her. What an irony this is. Jesus has been seeking desperately to teach His chosen Jewish male disciples Yet they have been every time been dull and non-comprehending. The fact is that this pagan woman is the first person in the Gospel of Mark to hear and understand a parable of Jesus. She enters the parable and allows herself to be claimed by it. She answers Jesus from within the parable. That is, she accepts the terms by which Jesus addresses her. And yet within the parable, she has met a living Lord with whom she has struggled and contended. She, in fact, is a female Jacob who has said, I will not let you go until you bless me. That's what's going on here. She comes in humility, knowing that she's unworthy, but in boldness, knowing that this Jesus is good. Luther was astonished by this story during the Protestant Reformation. 
Because he said, in this story, there was a woman who really grasped the gospel truth. He said, on the one hand, she's not too proud to accept what the gospel says about her unworthiness. But on the other hand, she doesn't insult God by being too discouraged to take up the offer. See, what Luther recognized and what we see in this story is that there are two ways to fail to let Jesus be your Savior. One is through a superiority complex, thinking that I'm too good to need the grace of God. The other is through an inferiority complex, thinking there is no way that I could ever receive the grace of God. Both of those ways hold Jesus at an arm's length and keep us from enjoying the love, mercy, grace, and kindness of God in Christ, thinking that we are either too good for it or that we can never enjoy it. In fact, John Newton, the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, says this. He's writing a letter to a, a parishioner who was, was feeling overwhelmed with depression and wrestling with sin. And he says this. He says, you say you feel overwhelmed with guilt and a sense of unworthiness. Indeed, you cannot be too aware of the evils inside of you. Maybe indeed you are improperly controlled and affected by them. You say it's hard to understand how a holy God could accept such an awful person as yourself. Then you express not only a low opinion of yourself, which is right, he says, but also too low an opinion of the person, work, and promises of the Redeemer, which is wrong. You complain about sin, but when I look at your complaints, Newton says, they are so full of self-righteousness, unbelief, pride, and impatience that they are little better than the worst evils that you complain of. See, Newton says it's just as much a rejection of the love of God to refuse to come after it as it is to say I'm too good for it. Listen, it's, just, it's like a man who, who has all kinds of symptoms but refuses to acknowledge that he's sick. So listen, there's nothing wrong with me. I refuse to acknowledge that I'm sick. I refuse to, to acknowledge that I need treatment. I refuse to acknowledge that I need help from the outside. That's one side of the coin, being too proud to acknowledge that we need the grace of God. The other side of the coin is like a person who believes that their case of their illness is the only one that's incurable. Everyone else's can be cured, but not mine. You don't know how sick I am. And listen, both of those responses to God, both of those responses to the offer of grace in the person of Christ are born out of pride. One that believes so proudly that I'm not sick. I'm too good for it. And one that believes so proudly that I am too sick. I am the unique case and I stand all alone as the one that cannot be healed. Both of those are a rejection of God's love. And listen, only grasping the truth of the gospel, grasping the truth of the gospel is the cure for both. Because the gospel says this, listen, that I am more, I'm more unworthy and undeserving and evil than I ever dare to admit. But I'm also simultaneously more loved and cared for than I ever dared imagine. That's what the gospel says to us. I'm absolutely unworthy, but I am infinitely loved. 
And until we come to grips with both sides of that coin, then we, have, we will never have the kind of humility or the kind of boldness that this woman exhibits when she approaches Jesus. Until we grasp and get a hold of gospel truth. Which side of that coin are you on this morning? Are you one who believes that you're too good? That, that you've, you've got a resume that you have built over the course of your life? Uh, you've never done anything really so bad to land you in prison. So you must be a pretty good, upstanding, moral person. Right? Or you're on that side of the coin thinking that you're too good for the grace of God. And so that when Jesus says, listen, you're like a dog that's unworthy and beneath the table. Right? You're, you're offended by that. It shows that you've never really grasped the gospel truth. Or you're on the other side of the coin, you're thinking... There is no way that a God that is so holy, that a God that is so righteous, that a God that is so infinitely pure could ever love me. Maybe you're on that side of the coin. Maybe you believe you have the only case that's incurable, that the, God, that the gospel of grace that you hear about every Sunday when you go to church, or the gospel of grace that you hear about when your friends talk about God's mercy and kindness, or the gospel of grace that you've listened to us as we've tried to unfold for the last nine weeks over this live stream and for the last six years of preaching at Redeemer Church, that I have been there, as we've tried to unfold this gospel of grace, you're thinking to yourself, I, this is for everyone else, but not for me, because I have the incurable case. Which side of that coin are you on this morning? Listen, my hope is that the gospel would grab you, and you would, as you grasp its truth, that while I am more unworthy than I ever dare admit to anyone else, I'm also simultaneously more loved than I could ever possibly imagine. Only holding those two things together will give you the kind of assertiveness and boldness that doesn't come demanding your rights and pounding on the table saying, give me what I deserve, but comes to God saying, listen, don't give me what I deserve. Give me what I don't deserve, not based on my goodness, but based on yours. So you have to grasp gospel truth. And whenever you grasp gospel truth, listen, point two, only when you grasp gospel truth can you then experience gospel wholeness. Experience gospel wholeness. See, in the second story that we read here in this text this morning, Jesus leaves Tyre, goes into the area of Sidon, and the region of the Decapolis, which just means the ten cities, these ten kind of Gentile cities that bordered northern Judea. And he goes into this region, and there he finds, or is brought before him, a man who is deaf and mute. And once again, the people are begging him, Jesus, begging Jesus to heal him. Now notice what Jesus does with this man. He doesn't give him a parable, right? But what Jesus does with this man is very personal. Because notice, notice the progression. He takes the man away from the crowd. Second of all, he puts his fingers in the man's ears. Second and third, he touches the man's tongue with his own fingers after he has a little spittle on them. He touches the man's tongue. Then he looks to heaven and sighs. Now listen, this is, you might think, well, what's, what in the world is going on here? How does Jesus 
touching his ears and his tongue, looking up to heaven, sighing. This is some, must be some kind of ritual of a miracle worker. But listen, no, it's not at all what's going on here. Because you look in the previous verse, uh, previous story, whenever Jesus heals this, man, this, this woman's daughter who has an unclean spirit, Jesus just says, listen, go home, she's okay. Go home, she is well. And the woman returns home, finds her daughter healed. The demon is gone. Now, Jesus never leaves the place that he was staying to go to the the little girl and perform some kind of incantation or ritual. He just speaks a word in response to her faith, and the demon is gone. So Jesus doesn't need rituals. He doesn't need incantations. So what's going on here? See, Jesus is not doing all of this because he needs it. He's doing all of this because the man needs it to understand what Jesus is going to do for him. Jesus deeply identifies with the condition and situation the man is in. Listen, in at least three ways. He identifies with him cognitively. Right? Because what's going on when he touches his ears and his tongue and he looks to heaven? Jesus is using some sort of sign language here because remember, the man can't hear. So it's not like Jesus can say to him, Hey, bud, I'm about to heal you. Get ready. Rather, Jesus touches his ears. I'm going to unstop these. Jesus touches the man's tongue, saying, I'm going to, I'm going to loose this to be able to speak. And Jesus looks to heaven as if to say, All this is coming from God. That's what Jesus is doing, cognitively identifies with him, emotionally. Look what he does. He takes the man away from the crowd. Because you can imagine as a man who has been deaf and not able to speak properly all of his life, he probably was a spectacle everywhere he went. As he tried to communicate with other people, people probably sneered or laughed at him. And so Jesus says, listen, you've been a spectacle all of your life. You're not going to be a spectacle now. I'm going to take you aside to where you're not a spectacle before the crowd. So he identifies with him emotionally, but he also identifies with him spiritually. Listen, Jesus looks up to heaven, and the text says he sighs. The word for sighs there is a deep sigh, almost a moan. Almost a belabored, a belabored moan. Now why does Jesus sigh like that? He's identifying with the man spiritually, but why does he sigh like that? You would think this would be a celebratory event. You would think that Jesus... Right? We'd like there'd be fireworks going off because he's about to heal, make this guy the happiest dude in the world. Right? Because he's about to bring his, restore his hearing and loose his tongue. So, why the angst for Jesus? Why the sigh? Because there's a deeper identification going on here. Don't just identify with him cognitively and emotionally, but spiritually as well. <coughs> you see, Mark uses a word for deaf mute in this text. That's only used one other place in the Bible. Only one other place. So it's a very unique word that Mark uses to help us connect what's happening here to what is recorded in Isaiah 35, verses 4 to 6. Listen to what Isaiah prophesies. He says in verse 4, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then, verse 5, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. 
See, Mark wants to make a connection between what's going on in Mark chapter 7 when he records this instance of Jesus unstopping the ears and loosing the tongue of this deaf man who is mute and what was prophesied in Isaiah 35 verses 4 to 6. Mark is saying essentially to his readers, do you see the blind seeing? Do you see the lame walking? Do you see the deaf hearing and the mute singing? Then the only reasonable conclusion from the Scriptures is that God has now come to save you. God's now come to save you. That's the reasonable conclusion that Mark wants us to draw from the word that he uses in Mark chapter 7 being the same word that describes what's going on in the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 35. Now, if you were thoughtful whenever I read the text earlier in verse 4, you might say, well, doesn't it say God will come with vengeance and reward? Right, with retribution and recompense? That both of those things are coming at the same time? Right, that there's going to be vengeance, there's going to be retribution, and yet you look at Jesus' ministry and you go, He's not going around whacking people, right? He's not going around killing people. He's not going around clubbing people over the head. He's not brutality leading a rebellion. That's not what's going on. He's not taking power. He's giving it away. He's serving others. Right, so the only answer here is that if God, when God comes to save, there's going to be both vengeance and retribution and reward and recompense. Then there's going to be healing. There's going to be the restoration. There's going to be wholeness that will be restored to your life. Then the only solution is this, that in his first advent, listen, church, Jesus did not come to bring divine vengeance, but he came to bear it. He didn't come to bring retribution, but he came to bear retribution. You say, well, where did Jesus bear divine vengeance? Where did Jesus bear divine retribution? And the answer is on the cross. Because you see, on the cross, the ultimate child of God, His one and only Son, was cast out from the table without a crumb so that you and I could be brought to the table for a divine feast. That's what's happening at the cross. See, at the cross, the child, the child of God, His only begotten Son, had to become a dog so that dogs like me could become a son, could become a child, could have a seat at the table. See, for this man's tongue to be loosed, Jesus had to become like a sheep who is silent before His shearers, before those who would take His life. I see whenever you experience, whenever you grasp gospel truth, that though I am unworthy and I cannot slam my fist on the table demanding God give me what I deserve because of my goodness, but I can only come, I can only come acknowledging my unworthiness and my humility, but boldly asking for blessing from God, not on the basis of my goodness, but of His. When we grasp that gospel truth, and that the way, the way that we can come to Him, the reason we can come to Him that way is because He was like a sheep that went silent before its shearers, because He was the child who became a dog so that we who were dogs could become children. He was cast out so that we could be brought in. When you take this truth, church, into the center of your life, 
it begins to put things back together and make you whole. Those things that were shattered in your life, ultimately you find them to be slowly being rebuilt, progressively being reformed. You find marriages being put back together. You find families being reconciled. You find relationships being mended and healed. You find your own soul finding health once again or for the first time. You say, well, how can, this, how can this Jesus do all of that? And here's the answer. Listen, in verse 37, after he heals the man, the text says, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He's done all things well. You know what Mark is trying to tell us there? He's saying, listen, this Jesus, this Jesus who heals, heals the deaf, who, who opens the ears of the deaf, who, who looses the tongue, looses the tongue of the mute, who gives to us blessing, cast out unclean spirits, brings personal cleansing and healing, brings corporate cleansing and healing, reunites relationships, heals, makes you whole. This Jesus is the God who made you. He does all things well, which harkens us back to, if you know the Bible, harkens us back to Genesis chapter 1, where over and over again it says what? And God did what? He made and it was good. He made and it was good. He made and it was good. He does all things well. There is nothing that He does poorly. This Jesus is the God who made you, so only this Jesus is the God who can make you whole. Only He can. But, so when you grasp gospel truth, only when you grasp gospel truth. See, because until you grasp it either, remember you're going to be on one side of that pendulum or the other. You're saying, I'm too good, which is going to swell you up with pride and it's going to, your soul is going to be eroded by a superiority complex, or you're going to say, I'm too bad, and I can never experience God's grace, and your soul is going to wither under an inferiority complex. Both of those are going to come out of pride in your life. And you will never be made whole. You will never find the healing that you need. It's not until you grasp gospel truth that you can experience this gospel wholeness. Now, as we wrap things up, I want to give you, what do you say, what, what, so what do I do with all this? Listen, first of all, and this one isn't on the sheet, but listen, first of all, if you have believed up until today that you are too good to need the grace of God, may you throw yourself, may you take all of your merits, all the things on your resume, and may you run them through the proverbial shredder of this story. Run them through the shredder. Run your resume through the shredder. And repent of your self-righteousness. Repent of your pride. Repent of believing that you're not sick. But knowing that within your heart that there is an illness there. For some of you, that's what you need to do. Run your resume through the shredder. For others of you, listen, the solution is the same because you got to take your resume that you believe makes you beyond the love of God. You've got to put it through the shredder as well and remind yourself that it's not your goodness 
that makes you acceptable before God, but it's His goodness that can make you acceptable before God because He has sent His Son to become a dog so that you could become a child. So if you believe that you are not sick or you believe that yours is the case that cannot be cured, both of you need to take that resume, run it through the shredder of this story and come to see that you can approach God with boldness and humility saying, give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness. If that's you this morning, in a moment when we pray, I'm going to pray for you that God would make that a true now, that, that truth of reality in your life. But second of all, I want to encourage you to heed Jesus' counsel. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you felt like God was being too severe with you. Right? Some of us may believe God's not being severe enough because you're on one, right? you're on one side of the spectrum. Right? You're, you're pride, you think God's being too severe with you because of your superiority complex. On the other side of the spectrum, your inferiority complex leads you to believe that God's not being severe enough with you. Right? And depending upon your personality, in the morning you might believe he's being too severe, in the evening he might not be severe enough, right? In the morning he might be puffed up and inflated superior than everyone, and in the evening might be inferior because of something that happened that day. Right? But either way, listen, heed Jesus' counsel. Listen, notice the different approaches Jesus takes with each of these people. With the woman, he lays out a parable that could be taken to be highly offensive in their culture. But with the man, listen... He enters his world personally, emotionally, with a high degree of sensitivity because Jesus knows what each person needs in the moment that he encounters them. So if you feel like God is being severe with you, in discipline, if you're a child of his, or in judgment, if you're not a child of his, if you believe that he's being too severe with you, listen, I want to say to you, Listen, heed, heed. You know what it means to heed something? It means to submit to it. Bring your life under it. Allow it to have its way and work in you. Don't cast it off believing God's being too severe with me. Because He knows what you need in the moment that you need it. He knew what I needed a couple of weeks ago as He used someone in my life to be rather severe with me that exposed some things in my own heart. And He can do the same for you if you don't cast it off. So heed what He has to say. The question is never, is the Lord speaking, guiding, and counseling me? But rather, am I heeding the guidance, counsel, and counsel that He is giving? But second of all, listen. As you grasp gospel truth and experience gospel wholeness, then you know that He is never too severe with me. Right? And he could always be more so. And you know, as a result of the gospel truth that you've grasped, right, that his severity fell on Jesus so you could be brought in. So you heed his counsel, but listen, you also follow Jesus' pattern. Notice how Jesus engages those who are different than he is in all sorts of ways. He goes into this Gentile region to engage pagan, women, disabled people, people who are different than him in all sorts of ways. And listen, if our lives are lit up by gospel truth, 
and are impacted by gospel wholeness and healing, then one result will be that we have a compassion for and service to those who are not like us. Those who are not like us ethnically, those who are not like us culturally, those who are not like us religiously, we will have a compassion for and move towards them in service rather than saying, they are not like me. They're not like me. So I don't have to serve them. They are not like me. So I don't have to be compassionate towards them. Listen, church, in our day and time, one witness that the world desperately needs to see is to see God's people loving and serving out of compassion those who disagree with them on all kinds of issues. All kinds of issues morally, all kinds of issues politically, all kinds of issues economically, all kinds of issues personally, all kinds of issues religiously. We need to see God's people willing, willing to serve them in the same way that Jesus was willing to serve those who were not like Him at all. And you know who that includes? Me. And that includes you. So may we follow Jesus' pattern as we live in this culture. May we heed His counsel. Regardless of how severe we feel like it is in the moment. And may we experience the kind of wholeness and healing that only Jesus can bring. As we grasp the truth of who He is and what He's done. Let's pray together. Father, I do pray this morning for my friends for family, for church family, for people who are tuned into this stream, who for for all their lives have believed that while they may not be perfect, they are too good to need the grace of God. Father, I pray that You would break them in their pride. I pray that You would shatter that perception. And Father, I pray for those on the other side of the pendulum as well. I pray for those who believe that they are so far beyond Your grace, that they have a case that cannot be cured. Father, I pray You would break their pride as well and show them that despite of the fact that they are unworthy, they are loved. And Father, for both, I pray that today they would flee to Jesus And they would find wholeness and healing in Him. They would have parts of their lives put back together in accordance with the way that you created and designed them to be. And they would do so all because of your grace. So, and so, and so, Father, as we experience your wholeness, as we grasp the truth, may we never believe that what you're leading us to repent of is too severe or the measures that you're leading us to take are too severe. But may we always see that the ultimate severity fell upon your Son so that we would not punish ourselves But Father, by your grace, that we would stand to our feet and we would approach you with boldness and humility. 
And then we begin to walk in following the pattern of Jesus himself, of reaching out to those who are not like us. Because, Father, the truth is none of us was like you. None of us was holy. None of us was pure. None of us was perfect. So may the weight of our sin fall on us today, but may it not crush us because of the cross. But lead us to a place of repentance and walking in truth with a heart and compassion that beats for a lost world. Because we at one time as well were walking in those shoes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.